0: Hello and welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. Every two weeks, experts from AMBOSS, the medical education platform, interview medical students and healthcare professionals to showcase international perspectives on everything in medical school and beyond the textbook.
1: Welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook.
0: That's Sophie Neal, and I'm Dr. Tanner Schrank, and we'll be continuing with part two of our interview with Dr. Joya Mukherjee. This is also our second episode in our mini-series of Leading Women in Healthcare.
1: Today's episode presents an iconic figure in the field of global health. She's a physician, an associate professor, and a chief medical officer, and a leading voice in healthcare. We're privileged today to welcome Dr. Joya Mukherjee, Chief Medical Officer of Partners in Health.
0: So without further ado, let's continue that interview. Dr. Mukherjee, so you're an associate professor at Harvard, and you've advocated for revamping health education, incorporating these elements that you discussed about social medicine, strategies for equity. But I'm very interested to hear how it's been received. In healthcare and medical education, there's often a lot of pushback. It's an uphill battle to get things to change, right? So if you're trying to institutionalize equity in a place like the U.S., how has that gone?
2: First of all, we are just so eternally grateful to our late founder, you know, an amazing, amazing thinker, Dr. Paul Farmer. He had a way of being at Harvard. You know, he became a full professor when he was about 40. He was so recognized as a scholar in medical anthropology. So he was able to wear that armor of academia in an important way. And he was incredibly nice. And so I think his hard-bitten scholarship combined with his very generative and generous personality made a lot of space for us at Harvard. On top of that, we actually have one of the oldest departments of social medicine in the country, a 150-year-old department. And many of the people who preceded Paul as the chair people were really impressive figures on their own. For example, Julius Richmond, who was our chairman for many years, was one of Lyndon Johnson's main, you know, warriors. He was a pediatrician. He helped to found and study Head Start and really was part of the war on poverty. He was an assistant surgeon general. He also worked for the Carter administration. He also took on big tobacco So, you know, I think we have a legacy of many people, Arthur Kleinman, who looked at the social theories as written a lot of books, including really the importance of the illness narrative, which is how people see their own illness and how that impacts them. So, so many scholars, I think, in our department historically have sort of paved the way for this to be accepted at Harvard. And then in this COVID pandemic, I think there was an awakening to some extent about inequity and how you can have some of the best, you know, medical centers in the world and fail miserably with the pandemic. And so I think this has been a bit like HIV was a terrible problem, but an opportunity to think differently. I think also COVID has been a bit of an opportunity if we use it. But of course, there's the backlash, right? And in Florida, where Partners in Health was asked to help a very, very poor migrant community in Immokalee, Florida, when we worked with the health center, which is a federal health center, one of the few kind of public-ish things we have to get money to pay community health workers, it was voted down by the county. And they sent the money back to the feds with some idea that it was woke, that they wanted their health freedom, whatever that means. So, you know, this kind of backlash is happening against social justice in the United States in a very profound way.
0: Well, that is disheartening to hear that there is that pushback. But it is nice to hear that there's sort of a silver lining to COVID if we use the opportunity, right? At least something good can come out of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say if something positive could come out of COVID, that would be excellent.
2: There's small things like I live in a wealthy neighborhood. My child goes to public school. You know, you look at school systems in the US in terms of one of the metrics for economic disparity is the percent of children on the reduced and free school lunch. And our community is maybe 8%. It's small. But the governor of Massachusetts made school lunch free for everybody, breakfast and lunch free for everyone in perpetuity. That's a really great strategy because we know that. There was some proportion of kids that got free and reduced school lunch. But for kids who maybe didn't qualify based on the income of their families, but it was still a struggle. It's expensive. So, that kind of social program again, these are ways to push back on inequity. You know, we know that many children are denied lunch in the United States because their families have a school lunch bill unpaid. And in fact, Philando Castillo, who was killed in Minneapolis by the police, was a lunchroom worker, and he famously had paid many kids' balances on their school fees so kids could eat. I mean, how crazy is that? You know, and those are the very kids who, you know, fall ill. So, you know, I think these are equity-focused strategies, and that came out of COVID. And, of course, I live in a very blue state, but these are really positive solutions.
1: Yeah, I think that is really positive. And ultimately, you know, we have different laws passed to try and help, right? But often, as you've just described, they don't work for everybody because there is often a case-by-case scenario. So, you know, for Massachusetts to actually pass something like that, that is pretty incredible. And it actually made me think of when you were, you know, speaking about the importance of walking with the affected and, you know, Speaking to people essentially rather than just to focus upon diagnostics and biomedicine. And so I wanted to ask, what does this look like in practice? And how can other healthcare providers incorporate that into their philosophy and their work?
2: Yeah. Well, I think there's at least three sort of tools that I've learned from working with people like Paul Farmer and other social scientists. One is really to take the time to take a life history. Like really talk to people and maybe you don't have time to do it with every single patient, but do with some. Right. What was your life like? Where were you born? What do you do for fun? What do you love? What's a challenge for you? Which really humanizes the person beyond some bacteria. Right. It's not a TB patient. It's a person who's then suffering with TB, but they may also be suffering because they're incarcerated. They may also be suffering because they're hungry, but they may also have a lot of joy when they get to see their family on visitation days. So really trying to get that life history, who was important in their life, their father, their mother, a friend. That is a really important part of humanizing people. And again, maybe you can't do it, but what I would always say to medical students, to nursing students is when you're a student, you have the time to do that. So don't shirk that because that's a beautiful thing to make that connection. The second tool that we think is an important practice is the illness narrative. And that comes out of anthropology, but it's a really important tool to understand what the illness means to a person. It's not just about culture. Like, it's more about really trying to understand how this is impacting somebody. So, for example, if somebody's illness narrative is that they caught this as a spell, but then because of that, they're isolated from their community and normally they would farm with a group of people, but now those people won't farm with them, that can have really profound impacts on their life. So, really trying to understand what people think about their illness, how it's impacting them, it may not be in the ways that you think. For example, for many years, you know, we used a drug in Peru for drug-resistant tuberculosis that turned people's skin very dark. That was harder for them than having tuberculosis because of racism. And I would never know that if I didn't spend the time to take that illness narrative. And so When we saw people not taking pills, it wasn't that they didn't believe in the pills. It was they didn't want to be dark and then identified as dark or identified as a person with TB. So it was like a visible sign. So this illness narrative is a way you can understand better the meaning of that to the person, not just the spiritual meaning or the cultural meaning. Those are important, but the meaning in their lives. How does this illness track with them? And then the third thing, there are many others, but I'm just saying these are concrete tools, right? The third thing is what we call the patient journey, which is really walking the walk, visiting people in their homes and just listening, just learning. How did you get here? How did you pay for this transport? And just really trying to hear what did it take the patient's journey to seek care, the patient's journey to get follow-up? Many people go to a traditional healer. That's true in the U.S. too. People go to church, right? They go to general nutrition centers. You know, none of that is science. But why do they do that first? Often because it's close, because they believe in it. You know, so really all of those things are forms of accompaniment. You know, this idea of walking with people through their journey, really understanding something about them understanding what they think, how they're feeling about their illness, and then what does their walk look like? All of these sort of practical skills are part of accompaniment and ways that then if you're in that fortunate position as I am to work with people who are designing systems, you can take those things into account and you hear the stories and that can help you build programs that will focus on the challenges that people face and really humanize people.
0: Wow, that's so impressive. I really love how you've like systematized empathy. Like it's not just, oh, be more empathetic. It's like step by step. I'm going to teach you how. This is how you do it.
1: And to give advice is tricky. But if you can actually break it down in a step by step, that's very helpful. And something, again, that might seem so simple, but talk to people. Actually, understand what they're going through and something that I feel we are losing more and more in the world because we're just adding more and more technology, more and more ways to contact each other that's actually not physical. So, yeah, Yeah. something simple, but very, very important.
2: Right. And asking why. And a story I often tell, you know, when I first started doing this work was, you know, very standard public health approach, weighing babies in Africa. And when the baby was underweight, telling the mother, these are the four food groups. We're asking, tell me about your life, walking with them to see their home or trying to understand how do they feed. And in my own ignorance, I perpetuated this stereotype that I'm an expert and that this mom is stupid and the reason her kid is dying of starvation is because she's stupid, rather than say, you know, tell me what's going on. And she would say, I can't feed my family. My husband died. We don't own any land. I'm trying to work on other people's lands, but I'm not able to make ends meet. And the reason people don't ask is they don't want to do anything about it. And so we've created this false narrative that's based in racism, that's based in sort of white supremacy, American supremacy, Euro supremacy, that we have the answers and the the reason for your sickness is that you're stupid and we'll just teach you to fit. And it's just really it's pernicious.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's so great that you're fighting back against these pernicious assumptions that students and then healthcare workers have, you know, like assuming we know best and obviously this is the best scientifically backed route to fix what ails you. Like, it's really good to see that it works when you actually walk with them and learn their life. And it's also interesting that you've even expanded this to other places. You serve on the board of directors for Village Health Works in Burundi, Project Musso in Mali. The Institute for Justice and Democracy in the U.S. and Haiti. I mean, the list goes on and on. But could you share some of the success stories from this human rights based approach to healthcare from all these different places?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think we at Partners in Health look at human rights in a very specific way. And it's something I teach a lot about. I was just teaching about yesterday. And I think it's not sufficiently examined. A lot of people talk about human rights, but what does the human right to health mean? And for us, it's specific. One is governments are the signatories to respect, protect and fulfill rights. So if you want the right to healthcare, it's got to be through the public sector, mm-hmm. right? One. And that's really different. That, you know, I'm always happy to treat people, you know, anywhere they are. But that's not necessarily helping to advance the right to health. The second is the people need to be able to participate in that, demand it from their governments, be it as part of a democratic process, be involved. And we do that by working closely with community members and seeking their participation as community health workers, as people on the team, as, you know, a voice. Those are really very specific ways we look at the right to health. And what we've seen, and obviously Rwanda is the biggest success story, but we have many, that the government really wants to do this. So we take a country like Malawi, which is a very poor country. The government actually has a fair amount of political will for health. Healthcare is free throughout the country, and they have seen the kind of work we're doing. Partners in Health in this very remote district, NANO. And now they're asking us to help them structure their primary health care plan for the country to slot partners into the public system rather than to have all these NGOs doing their own thing. So that is a way we can help empower governments to do the right thing, especially when they want to. Right. Because often the governments don't have the money to do the right thing, and in that space comes a million NGOs that do whatever they want, and it fragments care. So I think some of our success stories are really around helping governments to have better standards of care, working with partners, working with NGOs, improve, you know, the diagnosis of TB, for example, in Lesotho or working with the government on that. In a place like Burundi, for example where the government has been under a lot of challenges, let's say. Clinic for Village Health Works is a private clinic, but it works with the government. So the government sort of includes that clinic in their footprint. The government has supported the use of the land. So there are ways to have a mix of that. And so I think that's how we think of The human rights approach is how do you enable governments? And governments aren't a monolith, right? There's plenty of bad governments, but at a very local level, there are always civil servants who want to do right for people. They're local. They're locally elected. They want their own kids to get good health care. So working with mayors, sometimes working with heads of hospitals, it doesn't have to be working with big capital G government, but working with the public provision of health It's something that we've seen
1: very great responses to around the world. Amazing. And, you know, speaking of working, you know, from grassroots, what guidance would you give to young medical professionals who are passionate as well about social medicine and and that they want to make a meaningful impact on health disparities? What would you say to them?
2: I think the first thing depends on where you're from. Like if you're from a community, you're going to work there easy, right? But if you're a foreigner Like I am in many places I work. You got to just find your people. Find people who, you know, don't assume that you're the only person who's ever thought of this. There are people working so hard to change the reality for their own communities. And finding those people is key. And the rookie mistake is to find the first person who speaks English. Because those are often the people are trying to get out. So really try to see, observe, learn. Who are the people? Sometimes it's a grandma. Sometimes it might be a school teacher. It doesn't have to be like the most educated person speaking English. Find the people who are, as Mr. Rogers would say, the helpers, right? And then see what are the things they're working on. And, you know, I was so lucky in Haiti to meet several of my like dear, dear friends and colleagues who had sacrificed a lot to live in a very remote area and, you know, take care of sick people. And they didn't speak English, I didn't speak Haitian, we got by, and, you know, now we all speak whatever mix of languages we speak. (laughs) But finding your people and not assuming that you are so righteous, you have all the solutions, but really say, other people are doing this work, and how can I help? And then the other thing I say to my teams around the world, my colleagues, my friends, is it's like the parable of stone soup. A person comes into a village and everybody's starving and he has a pot and he has a stone. And he says, I can make this fantastic soup and you can all have some of it if you share something. And everybody's hoarding because everyone's starving. They're just hoarding a little piece of meat or a piece of potato or a carrot. And I say to our students, I have a carrot. I don't have the soup. I have technical knowledge, good training. I have an American passport. That's my carrot. But without our multitude of drivers and cleaners and people who really speak the local language and, you know, nurses and community health workers, there is no soup. So the humility of saying you have a carrot is really, really an important part of being in a kind of multidisciplinary, multinational team.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It takes some humility, some empathy Especially to fight against this white savior idea of, you know, white Americans going into Africa and Haiti and trying to fix things because they know better. You definitely need a big dose of humility.
1: Yes. Yeah. Very, very good advice. Well, I would like to ask you just one final question. If you could give our listeners any advice beyond the textbook, what would you say?
2: I would say if you want to work in solidarity and help the poor, Nobody is ever going to question your credentials. They're going to question whether or not you're humble. They're going to question whether or not you can listen. And that's really what you have to prove. Don't go and feel like you have to prove how smart you are, or prove what experience you have. You have to prove that you can keep your mouth shut,
1: listen and learn from others. I love that. That's really, really excellent advice. That's something I think we could apply to a lot of different situations for sure.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this whole interview been wonderful having you.
1: Thank you both. Yes, thank you, Jaya. Really, it's been really fun and really inspirational to chat to you. I really appreciate you giving us your time.
0: And thank you for listening to another episode of the AMBOSS podcast. Join us in two weeks for another episode in this mini-series of Leading Women in Healthcare. Until then, I'm Dr. Tanner Schrank,
1: And I'm Sophie Neal. And this has been another episode of the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook.
0: The links in the description can give you a more in-depth understanding of these concepts. If you like this episode, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the Amboss platform for your medical studies and sign up for a free five-day trial at Amboss.com.